This week will be a little bit different in that we're going to take questions as a part of the sermon. If you can imagine being in the church at the time of the apostles and the apostles being Jews and not having dialogue, it's impossible, incomprehensible. And so this will be more of a Jewish service in that you will be able to ask questions and even argue. So get ready. Um, It is a very controversial subject today. The subject is baptism. And the sermon today is going to be as, as, as much about getting you to think logically as it is about the Word of God. That's not really true. But if you don't think logically and if you're real cocky about how your brain works right and everybody else's is wrong, you've got to realize that when the fall occurred, it didn't just corrupt sexuality. It corrupted the intellect. And it's very hard in a university community where you've devoted your whole life to the intellect to think that your intellect is irrational precisely, often precisely at the point where you think it's most rational. Engineers will tell you that. And so this morning, listen to the points that are made about the way we think. For instance, listen to the point where I'm going to talk about the fact that often when we try to reform something, we end up deforming it about often when we try to put away the bad use of a good tool, we also put away the good use of a good tool. Because we think if something can be used badly, then we should have nothing to do with it at all. Another thing that you need to understand as we go in today is that it is the modern habit to sacrifice the normal on the altar of the abnormal. Now, you may not understand what I mean by that, but if I tell you that after the service, a guy came up coming out of Eastern European missions work and couldn't quite understand what my sermon, how it would be applied to Eastern European missions work. Look, Eastern European missions work is not the United States. The practice in Eastern Europe and its context is not the context we have here in southern Indiana. And so this sermon is going to be contextualized. And what that means is I'm not going to be preaching just in general, but specifically to us who are in America, who have inherited what used to be called evangelicalism and now is just called Christianity. And there are particular errors that we make today that I want to address. So if you're from Eastern Europe... Sorry, but this isn't a sermon particularly for you, although its principles apply. So watch your brain this morning. Don't let it screw around with you, okay? Now, here's the text, Matthew 28. And no, this will not be the final sermon on the book of Matthew. (laughs) Hey, listen, one of the commentaries I read last night said, actually said that he thought that it would be proper to have a full sermon on every word of the Great Commission. So we could potentially have years. Okay, everybody's laughing, those of you that are new, because I've been in Matthew a long, long time. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this morning, we're going to have a couple of baptisms. And so this morning, I'm going to pull out the command that Jesus gave that the disciples were to go making disciples and that one of the ways he mentions making disciples is baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is a sermon on baptism. Now, before I start, a warning. Many of you will take it personally this morning. My guess is that probably um, there were seven people uh, sitting up front in the first service, and at a point in the sermon I asked them to raise their hands if an error that I'm going to preach against had happened in their life, and I said three of seven of you are going to raise your hands, and three of seven of them raised their hands. I don't know how many are here. Let's say there are 200. My guess is that probably over 100 of you will yourselves have fallen into the error I'm going to preach against this morning. So if you think that I know somehow about you, I probably don't. Uh, Specifically the two of you, it's not a sermon about you because this sermon was written before I've ever heard of you. Okay? She's going to be baptized this morning. All right, now, so take it personally instead of resenting it. In other words, trust that this sermon applies to you, to the practice of your life, but that I'm not being unfair in addressing you and I know your circumstances. That happens all the time. People come up to me afterwards and say, you know, you didn't have to preach a whole sermon to me personally. And I say, you know, I never even thought of you during the sermon. And the reason is that the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to convict us. And so, like, be convicted, but don't get mad at me. Or if you want to, that's fine. But I've warned you. I'm going to read Acts 2.41. Jesus gives the Great Commission. A commission is what soldiers get from their officer. He gives the commission. And then immediately we have the day of Pentecost. At the end of the day of Pentecost, we have thousands added to the church. But what it says is that day when the first sermon was preached and the church began, it says Acts 2.41, So then those who had received his word, those who had received his word, the word of God preached, were baptized. Were baptized. All right, don't worry, I won't yell the whole time. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So here's the pattern. Those who believed are baptized and added to the church. Now, if you have no beef with that, you can leave at this point. But many of you that think you have no beef with that actually do. So let's get into it. There's an awful lot in the New Testament about evangelism. There's even more about the family life of the newly planted Christian church from the first sermon given in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost by the Apostle Peter. The New Testament records the working of the Holy Spirit through the apostles to plant churches across the Roman Empire. Now, how did it all start? At the conclusion of the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, we read the people were convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. And being, quote, pierced to the heart, unquote, they cried out to Peter and the other disciples, 
brothers, what shall we do? And Peter responded, be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Immediately the pattern was established. Those who believed were baptized and added to the church. Now note this carefully. Baptism is the first step a new believer is to take in obedience to Jesus Christ. We see it in the marching orders Jesus gave to his disciples, what we call the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see it in the day of Pentecost. Those who received Peter's word were we see it with the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts eight thirty six to 38. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. We see it with Lydia and her household. Notice, a woman, her household. All right. Acts 16, 31 to 33. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of God to him together with all. Excuse me. <laughs> a woman named Lydia. I skipped down to the Philippian jailer. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized. And then we have the Philippian jailer. The jailer asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Peter and Silas answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. We see it everywhere. Jesus commanded the apostles to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we are to obey his command. Now, what is our present practice? After 2,000 years, something unthinkable has happened. Men and women, boys and girls who have never been baptized are acting as if they're already members of God's household. They eat and drink at the Lord's table and enjoy every one of the benefits of the covenant household without ever having been granted entry to that household by the fathers of the household approving and administering their baptism. Jesus commanded it, the apostles did it, but today baptism is treated as an elective procedure to be done or not as the individual thinks best. Some time ago, the elders who served the Lord's Supper, and actually that's not true, it's constant, it happens all the time here. Our elders are serving the Lord's Supper to our congregation, and then they report at our monthly elders meeting that the children of this and that family are taking the Lord's Supper but have never been baptized. And so we discuss it. And we find that the parents of that family do not believe in infant baptism and are waiting until their children come of age and make a profession of faith before requesting that the elders examine them for baptism. Meanwhile, though, these same parents are encouraging their children to eat and drink the Lord's Supper. 
And so the children are eating at the family table without ever having been admitted to that table by the church officers we call elders. This is so common that now when I administer the Lord's table, regularly I'm careful to warn those who have never been baptized that they must be baptized into the family before they may eat at the family table. Now, with some folks, this doesn't set well. Occasionally, those who find it offensive leave our church for another where they may take the Lord's Supper willy-nilly without being baptized. Okay? But listen, such a practice is contrary to the Lord's instruction. And the practice of the early church recorded in Scripture. And the practice of the church across 2,000 years. It's unheard of to have the family meal without having the right of initiation into the church. It's unheard of. In both the Old and New Testaments, God commanded his people to observe an external physical right of entry to his covenant community. And down through 2,000 years of church history, baptism has been administered as the entry right to the Christian church because... Because Jesus said so. Because Jesus commanded it. What's the Old Testament pattern? Well, in the Old Testament, the entry right was circumcision. When God established his covenant with Abram and his descendants, here's what he said to Abraham, recorded in Genesis 17, 10 to 14. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Now listen to this. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So entry into the old covenant required circumcision. Those who weren't circumcised were what? They were cut off. They may have been members of Abraham's household. They may have been his sons or servants. But without circumcision, they were not considered one of God's people. True faith is not born of circumcision. It follows it. Yet God has ordered the beginnings of spiritual life in such a way that those who are not circumcised are not a part of the covenant community, the people of God, the household of faith. Without circumcision, God himself says no to those seeking entry to his family. He commands that the uncircumcised man, quote, shall be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. Now, at this point, it's common for those concerned to maintain the spiritual nature of true saving faith to try to maneuver around the necessity of baptism. Those of us that want to maintain the spiritual nature of true saving faith now get all weasley, all wobbly, and try to get around baptism because it's fleshly. It's like bodies. And what does God have to do with bodies? That's what we do sexual immorality with, and God, you know, doesn't like that. So let's forget the bodies and just talk about our hearts. 
So at this point, it's common for those concerned to maintain the spiritual nature of true saving faith to try to maneuver around the necessity of baptism by claiming a radical separation between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament in their respective initiation rites, circumcision and baptism. They admit the necessity of circumcision in the Old Testament, but they claim this was because God created the Old Covenant to be a covenant of nation and flesh. Whereas he changed the terms with the new covenant so that instead of nation and flesh, it became a matter of the spirit and the heart. Flesh and physical marks aren't important anymore, they claim. Now, this is wrong in both directions. It is wrong in making the old covenant a matter of nation and flesh rather than spirit and heart. Okay? But second, it's wrong in making the new covenant a matter of spirit and heart and not of flesh. While it's true that the old and new covenants differ in a number of ways, they do not differ here. Both old and new covenants have to do with our faith in Jesus Christ. And both command a physical rite of initiation by which those who live by faith are marked and welcome into God's covenant household. There are many texts in Scripture that demonstrate that circumcision was a matter of the heart. But let's cut to the chase and let's hit the big one. Speaking of the way Abraham, our father in the faith, was saved, the Apostle Paul warns against the false doctrine that the work of circumcision saved him. And he says, not at all, Romans 4, 11 and 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. And so here the Holy Spirit makes clear that Abraham had true saving faith while he was still uncircumcised. So in both the Old and the New Covenants, God gives the gift of faith, using it as the instrument by which a man is transferred from death to life. Circumcision saved no one. Baptism saves no one. A man is justified by grace through faith, not by circumcision or baptism, which are works of the flesh and the law. The law never saved anyone, and marks of the flesh never saved anyone. God is always after the heart. Cut off from faith, The man who looked to his circumcision, the man today who looks to his baptism for hope of eternal life, offends God. The sign means something. Now, that's kind of funny. The sign means something. And God does not take kindly to the sign's abuse. The naked sign without the presence of the thing the sign is supposed to signify angers God. 
Consider this command given through the prophet Jeremiah, Old Testament, Old Covenant. Jeremiah 4.4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. How can anybody believe that the Old Testament, that the Old Covenant is a matter of flesh? When you read that in Jeremiah... Jeremiah was addressing men who had been circumcised in the body, but whose hearts were far from God. And so the circumcision of the body, without the circumcision of the heart, brought God's wrath on them. A man is justified by faith alone, not by circumcision, not by baptism. Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But as God ordained the signs of both circumcision and baptism to signify the faith of a believing and trusting heart, we must recognize that God also bound the faith of a sincere heart to these physical signs. In other words, God is pleased to mark members of his household with a physical sign by which they are set apart, by which they are able to be distinguished from those who are not members of that household. In the New Covenant, God has given us two fleshly physical signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both are what we call sacraments, visible signs of an invisible internal reality. In other words, these two sacraments instituted by our Lord for his New Covenant household are at the heart of our life together as Christians, and we neglect them to our peril. What? Our peril? If God has my heart? What difference does it make whether I'm baptized? The difference it makes is that God commanded us to be marked with baptism, which is the circumcision. It's the sign and seal of our entry into his covenant family, and that's all we need to know. Romans 4.11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. John, would you prepare that text, please, that I asked you to read in the first one. And so if we claim to have faith, if we claim to have true, sincere faith, and immediately rebel against that faith's first fruits everywhere recorded in Scripture. What good is our faith? Make no mistake, the man who comes to God trusting in Jesus Christ and yet refuses to be baptized into Christ's covenant household is a rebel against God. He may be rebelling out of ignorance, but he's rebelling nevertheless. True faith in the Old Testament was never lacking circumcision, just as true faith in the New Covenant is never lacking baptism. Faith alone saves, but true faith is never alone. And that's the great scandal to Bible-believing Christians today. Because, you know, we're all about spirituality, by which we mean we're all about no accountability. Does this make sense to you? We all want to talk, and we all talk far beyond our experience, right? 
But we all talk far beyond our obedience. We sing songs and we give testimonies about how Jesus has my heart. And then we look at pornography. We sing songs about how we love Jesus and then we refuse to be baptized. We sing songs about, you know, trust and obey when we walk with the Lord, the light of his word. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Now, I love the hymn. But listen, we sing that hymn. And then we do what we willy-nilly please. We're not under the authority of any elders. And it says in Hebrews, submit to those in authority over you in the Lord. And I go to you, hey, dude, like, what's that about? And you go, hey, dude, I don't know, but trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Clear. You know, the surest way to get even well-adjusted people in, in 21st century America to all of a sudden develop facial tics is to say the word authority. It's unbelievable. Authority. Authority. That's why we're not Catholic. <laughs> you know, I don't think we should have the Pope infallible. And you go say, okay, so there's the infallibility of the Pope. And on the other side, there's each man does that which is right in his own eyes. And funny thing, nothing in between. <laughs> because why? Well, because all of us want to do what is right in our own eyes. Right? A man is justified by faith alone. This is the cornerstone of the Reformation. But a man who's justified by faith never has faith by itself. Never. Always true faith manifests itself by obedience. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. All right, you know. Go make disciples, baptizing them. I believe in Jesus. Will you baptize me? It's simple. So, how come we don't do it? Saving faith must always be accompanied by the marking of flesh by which a man is granted entry into God's household, the church. Old covenant and new, the people of God have been given saving faith in God's provision of righteousness through his son, Jesus Christ. And always those given this faith were marked by the physical signs of circumcision or baptism. Would you read it, please, John? See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. This, by the way, is what text? Colossians 2, 8 through 12. Go ahead, please. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 
Thank you, John. Now, you all heard it. The Holy Spirit puts in a parallel construction the Old Covenant initiation rite of circumcision and the New Testament initiation rite of baptism. The Holy Spirit puts them in a parallel construction. Now, to what degree are they the same and to what degree are they different? Okay? They're the same in that they're both initiation rites. They're the same in that they both point to a spiritual reality. They're the same in that they're both physical, right? But they're different. And they're different in that in the Old Testament, what we have is a certain mark that is unable to be given to half the human race, to put it delicately. Women were not circumcised. In the New Testament, Lydia was baptized. Discontinuous. Old covenant, one thing. New covenant, another thing. Now, we can begin to have a huge argument here. Because Edwards says that the most difficult problem of theology is the degree to which the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are continuous or discontinuous, are characterized by continuity or discontinuity. And in this church, the most notorious thing that we argue about is whether or not children who were included in the covenant sign in the Old Covenant, children were circumcised, should be baptized in the New Covenant. About half of us think they should be baptized, and about half of us think they shouldn't be. Right? But you know something? That's not the problem today. And it's the mark of wisdom that you fight the battles of today rather than the battles of yesterday. Today, the problem is each man does that which is right in his own eyes. The problem today is we have people taking the Lord's Supper who have never been baptized and who are not submitted to any elders of any church. And this is unheard of in church history. Anabaptist, Lutheran, Reformed, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, unheard of in church history. Now, we have a strong, strong uh, tradition of being disagreed in church history on infant baptism. We have Augustine and Martin Luther and John Calvin believing in infant baptism on one side, and John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, and Martin Lloyd-Jones not believing in infant baptism on the other side. So shall we solve the debate here? No. It's enough to note the difference and to admit that every man needs to study Scripture with the fathers of the church in order to come to a conviction concerning the truth. If following our study, we conclude that like circumcision, baptism is to be administered to believers' children, then we'll bring our household with us to the waters of baptism. But if we conclude that this is a place where the new covenant differs from the old, and that baptism is only to be administered to those who themselves believe and not to their children, we will come to the waters of baptism with only the members of our household who join us in saving faith and not our children. Every one of us should come to a firm conclusion on this. It does matter. How we raise our little ones in the Christian faith is of great 
import. We love our children and desire nothing as much as the salvation of their souls. Regardless of our conclusion on the matter of infant baptism, though, we should never throw our hands up in confusion or despair thinking baptism doesn't matter. We should never come to the position that God no longer cares about initiation rites, about physical marks of the body, and that now the only thing that's important is what a man believes, what he thinks, and what he feels in his heart. Because that's a sure prescription for... Well, it's not a prescription for anything. That's a sure reality of what we all are today. Note carefully, without circumcision, a man could not enter the temple to participate in temple worship. It's the same with baptism. The man or woman who isn't baptized must not be allowed the privileges of membership in Christ's church, particularly eating and drinking the Lord's Supper. Jesus' command is clear. New believers are to be baptized. The practice of the apostles is clear. When men and women believed, they were baptized. The Christian life started with baptism, and not until new believers were baptized were they a part of the church, the household of faith. So all Christians who fear God and honor his word agree on this. Without baptism, a man is outside the church of the living God. With baptism, a man is inside the church of the living God, the household of faith. And we must bring our practice into obedience to the scriptures in this matter. Here is the biblical pattern. First, a man is given faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second, the man obeys his Lord Jesus and asks to be baptized with or without his children, depending on whether he believes children are properly the subjects of baptism. Third, having been baptized by the pastors who stand in the place of the elders who have authority over the sacraments because of the heads of the household, all right, The man is welcomed to the family table, the Holy Supper of our Lord, where we eat and drink in remembrance of him. Now, this isn't complicated, is it? And so why have we turned away from baptism? Why aren't we doing it? Why have we rejected Scripture, the practice of the New Testament church in 2,000 years of church history? This section is called, When Reforming the Church Becomes Deforming the Church. If the Bible is clear and saving faith is always accompanied by baptism, how have we gotten to the point where our churches are filled with children and adults who eat the family meal without ever having received the rite of initiation, the physical sign and seal of family membership? Attend worship services and look around when the Lord's Supper is served. If you're in a normal evangelical Bible-believing church, you'll be surrounded by children and adults who have never been baptized but are eating and drinking the Lord's Supper. It is our habit to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and the current practice of baptism is a perfect example. Some years back, I'd taken a call to a new church and noted soon after beginning the work that this was the church I formerly served here in Bloomington. Soon after taking that call, I observed that some in the church were coming to the Lord's table without having been baptized. At that time, I had never heard of such a thing. I could not figure out why it developed and i began teaching the congregation that baptism came first and after a few months the founding pastor of that church returned for a visit we spent a couple hours at our home in our living room talking me asking his counsel getting the history of his leadership in the church and at that time i asked him he was a faithful shepherd who loved his sheep with a great heart but on one matter as i talked to him i saw that i'd have to take a different tack Near the end of our conversation, I told him I'd noticed a lack of conviction concerning the biblical basis of baptism among the people of the church, and I wondered why. 
He responded by pointing out how common the belief in baptismal regeneration was in this area, particularly among Protestants of the Christian church denomination so popular and predominant in this part of the country. Freely, he acknowledged that in order to oppose that error that baptism saves you, that you can't be saved without baptism, right? that he had de-emphasized baptism and sort of relegated it to a minor position in his preaching and in his practice. Sadly, this is quite common today. Many who have grown up within denominations that believe and teach that baptism saves a man later react against this error and neglect baptism entirely. This is no way to reform the church. The improper use of a good thing does not invalidate its proper use. Neglecting baptism does not protect it. Rather, it does inestimable harm to those souls who are thereby denied entry to Christ's church. And looking around, we can see many errors of a similar nature. People teach that church membership saves a man. And so we reform the church by abandoning church membership. People teach that church members should submit to every command their pastor or elders gives them, no matter how little resemblance those commands bear to the practice of the New Testament. And so we reform the church by denying the authority Jesus delegated to church officers, making sure our officers never command anyone to do anything. People teach that the Lord's Supper is a converting ordinance, and so we reform the church by only celebrating the Lord's Supper every three months. People teach that good works earn a man entry to heaven, and so we reform the church by speaking only of grace, and we smear any emphasis on good deeds as legalism or work salvation. People teach that women are called to be pastors and elders, so we reform the church by not allowing women to do anything other than provide food for the potlucks and work in the nursery. People teach that the Pope is infallible, and so we despise all church authority. People teach that baptism saves a man, and so we reform the church by not calling new believers to the waters of baptism. The list could go on and on, but let's stop with the examples and take a moment to nail down two principles so we never forget them. First, it's no reform to deform the church. Putting away biblical commands and practices in order to remove unbiblical ones. In Scripture, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And we must follow the pattern of church life there revealed. Not our own best guess about what Jesus would do today if he were here. And man, that is so common in elders meetings, in my own heart and mind. It's common everywhere. We say we believe that Scripture is God's revelation... And then when we hit a decision, we think, well, you know, the Bible says this, but on the other hand, if I do this, people will misunderstand. And so I just twist it a little bit to contextualize it. And then it won't be so offensive to people watching who are pagans, who don't have the Holy Spirit, so everything you do is disapproved by them. But just this little gnarly area... Like, for instance, abortion or homosexual, you know, things that the op-ed pages of newspapers are filled with, you know, things that first impressions in the courts, you know, all those things, you know. 
We'll take those things and, you know, we know what Jesus meant. And we'll contextualize it today in a way that will keep Jesus from being offensive. But if you look at Jesus, does it seem like he spent his life worrying about causing offense? Did he die? He died. Why? Because nobody was more offensive than Jesus Christ. And so today, what we need to do is repent of our constant habit of sacrificing the normal on the altar of the abnormal. All right? Just obey. Just obey. Don't think you're smarter than the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit reveals something, say, the Holy Spirit said it. Rita Cuffey, that godly woman that some of you remember, my dearest friend for years here in Bloomington, when she became a Christian, she read that the Bible said that she, would go, she should go and pray in her closet. Undergraduate degree from Radcliffe, graduate fellow in astronomy at Harvard, Rita Cuffey. Went to Boston Latin School. She read that the Bible said that when you pray, you should go into your closet. And as a new Christian, what did she do? She went into her closet. What a, what a stupid woman. What a dumb, ignorant, stupid woman. Doesn't she understand it's the heart that God cares about? It's not closets. I mean, what, what, how did she ever get through undergraduate? school and so that's what we do we always think we know what god really meant to say you know well if jesus were here today he would never call the human race man he would never refer to women as brother in the new testament epistles i mean today that was the ancient patriarchal culture and the holy spirit couldn't quite escape the ancient patriarchal culture and its language but smart people and sophisticated people like me who talk loudly in restaurants, I know how to talk today in a way that doesn't offend anybody. And so I'll always say brother and sister, and I'll always say man and woman, and I'll never use the word man to refer to the race anymore. Even though the Holy Spirit does it all through Scripture. And I'll always show I'm politically correct by saying human. Of course, human is man in it it's not hugh woman and woman woman has man in it so that's why when you study history it's herstory that's why a lot of people spell w-o-m-y-n damn the men Get rid of them. My father raped me. And God could never have anticipated the pain that I've suffered at the hands of men. And that's why Scripture's language is offensive to me. I will not pray to God the Father because fatherhood is not nice. And so people today are baptized not in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but in my old denomination, many of the children are baptized in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. 
And so we fall back into the ancient modalist heresy, where instead of the Trinity being three persons, it's three ways of relating to man. The ancient church was smart. They condemned it. We're stupid, and we embrace it. Why? Because we hate fatherhood. We hate authority. And so again and again and again, people who are abnormal, it is still abnormal for women to be raped by their fathers. We sacrifice the normal on the altar of the abnormal. And we turn away from the clear commands and language of Scripture, thinking we know better than the Holy Spirit. We have to return to our Lord's command and the pattern laid down by the apostles in obedience to his command that when men and women believe in Jesus Christ, the first thing to be done is to mark them physically with baptism, the sign and seal of God's covenant of grace. And not until they are baptized are they to be invited by the church officers to the Lord's table or given any of the privileges of membership in the church of the living God. Now this brings up one final matter. As it is wrong to come to the Lord's table with baptism, it is also wrong to be baptized... without uniting organically and physically with the church of Jesus Christ. You may not be baptized into the church invisible. Baptism is a visible sign. And so nobody in this church can be baptized into the church invisible, the church universal. No one. Because it says in Acts that... They repented and believed that they were baptized. And then you remember what it says. It says, and there were added to their number. And we just ditzbrain right over top of that. You know, we say, well, whatever that means, here's what it means. The first church in Jerusalem that day had added 3,000 members who came under the authority of the elders of that church. Not one person was baptized who did not submit to the authority of the elders in baptizing them, at that time the apostles, and who then didn't come to the Lord's table without that baptism. Do you understand that? They didn't come to the Lord's table because, after all, how can you excommunicate someone that you've never communicated? And who's supposed to excommunicate someone? Now, that's the end. That's it. That's the sermon. And now it's time for questions. And the harder they are, the happier we'll, we'll be. First, I believe John has one. Then Michael has one. And um, David Canfield and Tim Wagner and Stephen, would you guys come up here? So if I want to punt, I can punt to you. <laughs> David Canfield is our... Church history expert, Stephen uh, Baker has a beard, and (laughs) and Tim Wagner and I are blood brothers who've been here from the beginning, and he's Baptist, and I'm Presbyterian. So now, let's go ahead. Uh, There's a mic that will be brought to you as soon as you're ready with your question. John Churchill, I believe. Oh, you didn't have a question. Then Michael Foster is first. Stand, please, as you speak, and give us your name. Sound like it. Is this on? You guys can hear me? Uh, Right up to your mouth. Right right up. All right. Um, Welcome to Bloomington. 
Michael has moved as of today. Go ahead. Um, Tim, in my background, I came from Calvary Chapel out of Jesus Movement. And it's really common for just anyone that's part of a church to baptize each other. Yes. Usually there'll be, it won't, it'll be a bunch of people at a pool or a, but it's not the elders, uh, but it certainly is a community thing. So what do you, well, for someone that's been baptized uh, by just, you know, some other Christians, should they get rebaptized or how does that play out, you know? Well, uh, much of the last week has been spent debating that issue in the Board of Elders. Stephen, why don't you answer that? (laughs) Actually, the Board of Elders is somewhat split on this issue. And I think you guys need to know that. The Board of Elders takes votes all the time that are split. And that's good. And the reason it's good is that we trust that the Holy Spirit leads through a plurality of elders. And that the Holy Spirit leads us when the majority wins. But in this case, it was actually unanimous. Uh, It was. (laughs) Um, The the position of the elders is that the, uh, the sacraments are given to the church, which is to say the sacraments are given to the church officers. Um, Again, excommunication, communication, excommunication, church discipline is all wrapped up in that. And so we believe that if you were baptized, do you want me to say this? Yeah, yeah. Okay. If you, <laughs> if you were baptized by someone other than a church officer, I would say, or other than someone who, whatever church you're from, was recognized as a leader of that church, um, then we would like you to be rebaptized. What, we, what we're disagreed over, I should clarify what we're disagreed over. What we're disagreed over is whether or not Roman Catholic baptism is a valid baptism. I'm not going to go into it deeper, but that was wrapped up in the issue we were examining, and that was very tough for us to know how to deal with. And if you look across Protestant history, that's an issue that Protestants have been divided over. So we're not going to solve it today if you want to know our thinking on that. But, yeah, baptism and the Lord's Supper are not given to fathers of households. They are given to the church, and it is the church leaders and authorities that have the responsibility of protecting you, not your husband. And so there's a big movement in the United States today on the part of homeschoolers to have their husband serve them the Lord's Supper and to have their husband baptism. That's absolutely contrary to Scripture. So that's why the elders unanimously say baptism and the Lord's Supper belong to the church. They do not belong to a patriarch whose wife is telling him what to do. Okay, next question. Doug. For those who either were baptized as infants or have our children baptized as infants, they are a part of the church, but are not communicant members. Where is that line? At what point? Are, there's obviously not an age. It's going to be a, and it'll be different from child to child. Mm-hmm. If you're baptized as believers, then obviously when the children can make profession of faith, that's when they do so to the elders. At what point do, do the 
You know my question. <laughs> when does a child of a covenant family who has been, already been baptized come to the Lord's table? When they become members of the church? They, they, in, in, in our church, that means they go through a class, they're examined by the elders, and um, they are examined both for church membership and for baptism. And they're baptized, and they come to the Lord's table. That's what oh, he just I'm sorry. Said. If they, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They've been baptized. I'm sorry. I was thinking. Of, I'm sorry. I was thinking of my kids. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. That, that, that was confusing. I hate it when people do that. Um, but they, since they've already been baptized, they would be examined for church membership. They would be uh, admitted then to the Lord's table at that time. Yes, let, Aaron. let me respond to that quickly, okay. too, if okay. I may. Go ahead. In Deuteronomy 6, the exhortation is given by Moses to the people, when your child in time comes to ask you about these things. And what are these things? In Deuteronomy 6, 4, there's the well-known Shema, or the hero Israel, the Lord is God. Uh, God is the Lord, more precisely, and the Lord is one. Okay, so the doctrinal content of the faith is communicated to the children when they attain an age of reason. Okay, also at that point in Deuteronomy 6, the father is commanded to communicate what God has done. In this case, he refers to the specific act of leading them out of Israel. Excuse me, out of Egypt. All right, so um, this ties in to the child developing at a certain age an ability to understand faith. Okay, at that point, the Israelites were instructed to circumcise their heart. That, comes, uh, that command is given, I believe, in Deuteronomy 10. And so that child has to express faith on his own, even though at the time of his circumcision at the age of eight days, he was... Uh, brought into the covenantal family of God through the faith of his father. So I hope that clarifies a little bit. Aaron. So it sounded like um, you, well, uh, so you said that, uh, that a child must become a member of the church before he's admitted to the table, even if he's already been baptized. So I'm wondering, uh, what is the point of baptism, if not a public statement of inclusion, into the church, um, some what what is then attached to baptism? What is not, baptism a signal a symbol of, Aaron? Uh, washing away of sin from the body, just as sure as dirt is washed away by water. And so, an infant who's baptized, are they a Christian? Yes. Because why? Because their parents are Christian. But you're playing games with words. Because as everybody here understands a Christian, namely a regenerate soul, you're equivocating. And you're using Christian to refer to people who are in a covenant family. Nobody here would ever have any idea that's what you meant. Now, push me. Go ahead. Come back at me. Well, so the question's the question's a good one. Keep going. Into what are they baptized if not uh, the covenant family, and and who is admitted to the table if not the covenant family? All right. So are children who are baptized baptized into the covenant family? Yes. 
because they're covenant children. So to what degree is regeneration and membership in the covenant family the same, and to what degree is it different? Also, wait, 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 wait. You asked the question, let me answer it. There are some aspects which are the same, but some aspects are different. You yourself said that baptism does not regenerate and that that child cannot be said to be regenerate because that child is baptized. So that's different. On the other hand, you can teach that child to pray to God as father because they're a member of the covenant community. Are you all with me on this? And so there's some things that are different, some things are the same. Now, here's an interesting thing. Because Baptists don't believe that children are members of the covenant community, they teach their children not to pray to God as Father. Now, that's a joke. What we don't want to admit is that there is almost identical practice in this church, anyhow, between paedo-baptists and credo-baptists in terms of how they treat their children. I asked recently somebody here, I don't remember who it was, but it was one of the people that doesn't believe in baptism. I said, would you be willing to have the elders of this church discipline your children? And he said, yes. Weird. They're not members of the covenant community. They don't have any right to have church discipline. And yet our elders discipline Baptist children all the time. Primarily Baptist children. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he said primarily Baptist children because he's Presbyterian. Yeah, yeah. The others don't need it, of course. <laughs> okay, now we'll give you one more follow-up. Get to the issue of Pato communion because that's what you want to get to. Right, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm saying that if, if a child is baptized into the covenant, he ought to take the covenant meal, it, so it seems. I'm yeah. sympathetic with that. Idea. Yeah. So in the Reformed world today, in Protestants, there are many churches that practice what's called paedo-communion, which is the children are baptized as babies, and as soon as they're able, they take the elements at the Lord's Supper. All right? And that's a church that Aaron comes from with his wife, Crystal. All right? Now, at this church, we do not allow that. Why? David, well, maybe, Stephen, you should go back up. That's why we have communicant and non-communicant members. So a non-communicant member is a child who's been baptized and yet who has not come to the point where they can scripturally do, do what Scripture says, especially in First um, Corinthians 11, which is to discern the Lord's body to understand what's going on, to um, understand the community they're part of, to confess their sins, uh, to be unified, to forgive, you know, and to have conscious communion with Christ himself. That's why we have a line there. We have two categories of membership. And interestingly, David, you want to address it, or you want to just stop it. <laughs> Listen, let me say one other thing. You know who principally are the people of this church who practice paedo-communion? Baptists. Baptists. Isn't that weird? It's really weird. You know, it's generally Baptists who have their children at the Lord's table before the elders have approved them. It's generally not Presbyterians. Isn't that weird? Anyhow, I just thought about you to be interested in that. You want to say something? Shouldn't be that way. By the way. Oh, no, come on. Come on. Dignify us with your presence. 
a joke. Yeah, tell a joke. Dignify us with a joke. What was the question again? <laughs> why don't why don't we serve communion to our children? Well, the Presbyterians do. Yeah, specifically children who have been admitted to the uh, to the covenant community. It's the opposite of what you were saying about the bath. <laughs> Do you remember what he said about the What did he say? I said this. Yeah, let's get that mic in there. Yeah. No, 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 before that. I don't know. See, I told you the moment was. What's that? Generally, he's funny. Baptists are the one that have their children pray to God as Father. But we don't, he said. Right? That was a joke. And I said, but the Presbyterians here serve their children communion. But they don't. That was my joke. Actually, I now get it. And it's a, and it's a good point. Okay, next question is Adam Spady. Or Mr. Don Wegner. <laughs> why don't uh, why do we have classes and elder examinations when the pattern we see here is often preaching baptism ad, ad addition all uh, in one fell swoop Tim you want to handle that <laughs> what did uh, Philip do with the Ethiopian eunuch He, he was preaching to or sharing with him directly, and then he questioned him. Now, we don't have the full extent of the questioning. All right. um, that is, now, you can say that's a biblical example, and it is. It's a, it, it, and just because something happened in Scripture doesn't mean we ought to do it. But when we read... You have to speak into the I'm mic. sorry. I'm, when we read that um, we need to rightly discern the body and blood on pain of death... Did you all catch that one? On pain of death. The Lord's Supper is not something to be done lightly. Because it says, for this reason, many of you are sick and weak, and a number of you have fallen asleep. And that isn't because they were bored in the sermon. Okay? So we try to discern, does this person rightly discern the body and blood of Christ? It is part of protecting the congregation from themselves and from their own presumption. Um, you might say the, the church has practiced a number of things throughout, not the history of the church has practiced a number of things throughout history. There are times that uh, the church has had baptism once a year on Easter, and that was it. And if Easter you, Eve, I think. Easter Eve? I think it was okay, Easter Eve. Okay, I'm, I'm standing corrected, Easter Eve. But it was once a year. And if you became a Christian two days later... You needed to wait. Okay. We tend to try to group them pragmatically so that we can have the uh, uh, watering trough brought out. <laughs> Someday maybe we'll have a fountain out there under the, under the front. I always thought that would be fun. Um, but uh, we, just for the practicality, for getting it in the sermon, often people are wanting to uh, be there. 
This is particularly true with, with uh, baptism of covenant children. Um, they're wanting grandparents to come by, scheduling, working that out. One thing I want to say about uh, this issue. Tim said that what occurs in Scripture is not normative. In other words, you can have a record of what happened in the church without a command to do what happened. All right. So, for instance, you have the Ethiopian eunuch baptized into no church because there was no church in Ethiopia. The exception does not disprove the rule. And what you'll see is that baptism is always combined with preaching and teaching. In the Great Commission, it's combined so that Calvin actually says on this text that you can't have baptism without preaching and teaching. And so what the church did over time is the church lengthened the period of teaching and preaching for people who were going to be baptized so that it became people that were being catechized, okay? But remember this. Everyone who was baptized on the day of Pentecost, everyone, immediately had what identity in the city of Jerusalem? What identity? Christian, but what identity? They were absolutely the scum of the earth. In America today, and in fact the whole western world, the whole northern hemisphere, if you're baptized today, that means that you become a better American. Now it's changing, but it's still that way. And so partly the reason that there should be a period of time is that today you're not signing your death warrant when you're baptized the way Buddhists are, the way Muslims are. And so my inclination, if I was in an Islamic country, would be to just immediately baptize them so that they don't have a time to get cold feet and to get afraid. They've gotten to the point where finally they're willing to be baptized, do it. Whereas in America, my inclination would be to never baptize anybody. Now, you know I don't mean that, but you get the point. Okay. Could I draw uh, a, a, a distinction that relates to Adam's comment here, too? As far as early church practice went, and we're talking about the first several centuries of church history, the church viewed baptism with such importance as an admission into the visible church, which, of course, indicated uh, uh, a spiritual um, admittance to the in church invisible, that the practice of the early church for first several centuries was that you did not participate in the church service in certain aspects of it unless you were baptized. It was fine to hear the preaching of the word that was appropriate for non-baptized persons. But when it came time to s distribute the elements of the Lord's Supper or to pray, all of the non-baptized persons in the church, even the catechumens, who were people who were studying the Christian faith but had not yet been baptized, were dismissed. They were expelled almost from the, from the assembly of believers who had been baptized, and only those people would be physically present to receive the spiritual benefits of the Lord's Supper and offering of prayer. Prayer was thought not to be appropriately admixed with the prayers of pagans or non-baptized persons with those who had been baptized. Thank you.